0: oftentimes before we come to look at God's Word together, I I ask you to join me and to pray that God would speak to us through His Word. I hope you understand that that song that we've just sung has been a wonderful invitation for God to come and to speak to us. Turn with me to the passage we read a moment ago, Matthew chapter 15, page 982, This is a, a passage that falls in a consecutive series that we've been following for the last few weeks and will continue to follow for a few more weeks to come in this particular chunk of Matthew's Gospel. Matthew chapter eighteen, sorry 15 on page 982. The recent census results would tell us that Ulster, Northern Ireland, is a predominantly Christian society. About 90% of the people in Ulster claim to be Christians. I don't think that will surprise any of you here today. When it comes to identifying their religious identity, Ulster people tick the box that says Christian. Now, there's different variations and different denominations that they get to choose from, but broadly speaking, 90% or so of Ulster people call themselves Christians. I want to suggest this morning that there's another religion in Ulster. It has a large number of adherents, and although it's not mentioned specifically on our census, it clearly has a lot of uh, people in Ulster who, who follow it. The religion I'm talking about is churchianity. Churchianity is a religion which appears to be based in the Christian church, and that's where it gets its name. But it's not primarily interested in the core message of the Christian gospel or the God who is at the center. Churchianity has a few different commitments. Its followers are generally decent folk, uh, committed to some sort of respectable living, They get a lot of comfort, many of them, from participating in church-going habits that have been handed down to them uh, through the generations. The followers of churchianity enjoy maintaining and participating often in human traditions. These things, quite often things that they have just received with their mother's milk, something that was handed down to them, are more important than finding and obeying the will of God. In our passage today, we find Jesus Christ confronting the churchianity of his day. At the heart of the passage here in Matthew's account, he tells us of a certain incident where some Pharisees and teachers of the religious law came down from Jerusalem to Galilee and they confronted Jesus. They said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Now, remember how discipleship works. We've thought about this a lot over recent years at Kirkpatrick. The disciples who who stand accused here, these are the 12 guys who follow Jesus Christ. They have left everything to be with Jesus, to watch Jesus, and to learn from Jesus how to live. So when these religious leaders come down and accuse Jesus' disciples of living the wrong way, they're accusing Jesus of living the wrong way. Really, they're accusing Jesus and they're saying, you're breaking the tradition of the elders. You're not washing your hands before you eat. You're setting a bad example and your disciples are following it. Seems like a a pretty strange accusation to us, so we probably need to take a moment to work out what it is that the the religious leaders actually accuse Jesus and his followers of. Well, they're accusing Jesus and his followers of breaking the tradition of the elders, the rules of their particular brand of churchianity. The Jewish religious hierarchy of the time They had had established a whole system of laws and of traditions that they had handed down through the generations from one to the next. There were like extra interpretations of the law of Moses as we find it in God's Word. There were kind of like extra safeguards that they had put in place to make sure that people didn't break God's law. And for the Pharisees, a test of your commitment to God was how committed you were to keeping these traditions and laws that they had created. So on this occasion, there's a very particular infringement that they have in mind. There's a particular kind of ritual hand-washing that Jesus and his disciples aren't doing. It's something that's thought to make a person ceremonially pure. Now, it's important to get something here. There is no command in the Old Testament that says you need to wash your hands before you have a meal. There is a command that says a priest preparing to go and do his duty in the temple has to wash his hands and his feet in a particular way to be ready for his service. So do you see what the guys are doing here? They're reaching into a very specific sphere, the sphere of the priest serving the temple, and they're saying those same rules apply to everyone in their ordinary everyday lives. In their minds, I'm trying to work out what these guys are doing. I think they're raising the bar a bit. They're they're tightening things up, if you like. They're making sure that people are are holier than they they currently are. They're inviting people to a holier and, and more intense and serious religious experience. And they're accusing Jesus of not playing ball quite funny what happens here actually because these guys, because Jesus doesn't join them in their outward habits, because he doesn't observe the rules that they have imposed, Jesus ends up not holy enough for their liking. Jesus not holy enough. Isn't that laughable? It sounds absolutely bonkers. God comes among us in human flesh The Holy One walks among us. And people gather around and say, You don't meet the mark. You're not holy enough. You're not as holy as we are. Folks, it sounds crazy. But on reflection, I think it's incredibly widespread. It takes only a moment's reflection to realize that Jesus still isn't and wouldn't be holy enough for a lot of the church communities that we have in our land today. Jesus would be turned out of some of our churches on the grounds of how he spent a Sunday. Just wouldn't cut it in some of our churches. He'd be turned out of others on the grounds of what he drank and where he drank it and who he drank it with. Jesus would be turned out of others on the ground of his unrelenting commitment to the poor and the downtrodden. That just wouldn't fit in some of our churches. It's quite possible that some would chase him from the door because he showed up with the wrong translation of Torah. His outspoken views about hypocrisy among religious leaders, guys like me, means that most of us would be looking for the first available opportunity to chase him, to get rid of him. Friends, it seems to me that a good test for the authenticity of any Christian community is how much Jesus Christ would be at home in that place. You'd think Jesus would be at home in the church. You'd think that, but only before you began to really dwell on it and enter into that. That's a wonderful question for us here at Kirkpatrick Memorial. How would the real Jesus, the one revealed to us in Scripture, how at home would he be among us? So the accusation's out there. Jesus, your disciples and, and you aren't holy enough for our liking. You're not churchy enough in the way we want you to be churchy. You, you may have noticed as we read the passage, Jesus doesn't answer their accusation really. What he does instead is he, he throws out a counter-accusation. He says, you've accused me of breaking your traditions, the tradition of the elders, your own human churchy Well, hear for a moment my accusation. I accuse you of breaking the very law of God. And that's a much more serious charge. You guys claim to be the great defenders of God's law, and yet you break the very fundamental aspects of that law that you're claiming to uphold. In verses 5 and 6, Jesus tells us what he means. God's word tells us that we should honor our parents. Cursing our parents is a serious matter worthy of death. And yet that's exactly what you've done. You've failed to honor your parents. You've cursed them to the lives of hardship and poverty. Jesus goes on to explain a very specific scenario that must have been ongoing in that community. And this is the thing that he's challenging. You see, the commandment to honor your parents doesn't just mean to to sit at home and say, oh yeah, I love my parents, they're great. Only your parents had a very practical aspect to it. It meant to look after them and to support them financially. And, And just imagine for a moment how important that was in a culture where there was no state pension and probably not much, by the way, of personal pensions. So in Jewish culture, children are responsible for the well-being of their parents until the day when their parents die. But the Pharisees had sidestepped all of this. They would set up a a tradition of their own, a practice called korban. It's one that gets its name from the the Jewish word for gift. And it worked something like this. If you go to the temple, you approach the priest and say, priest, I'm going to give my material wealth as a gift. I'm going to consecrate it to God for for use here in the temple. If a person did that, then they were exempted from their responsibility to their parents. Do you see what's going on here? The Jewish religious hierarchy had established a rule that made it possible for people to disobey the law of God. Jesus saw through this religious facade. He he saw that these man-made rules stood in exact opposition to the life that God calls us to. That's why he says in verse 6, you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. For Jesus, it's all hypocrisy in the end. uh, Verses 7 to 9, he reaches back to an ancient prophecy a time when Isaiah spoke to God's people. And Jesus says to these Pharisees, these religious leaders of his day, you're just like the people that Isaiah spoke about. You make a big deal, a big song and dance about your love for God. But the reality is that your hearts are very, very different. You think you're worshiping God, but it's your own stuff. It's your own man-made rules. It's your own traditions and and heritage that you worship. Jesus confronted the religious leaders of his day with their own churchianity and he shows it up for a a hollow sham. Folks, this is for for me over the years, this has been a, a surprising discovery, if I'm honest. I always thought that the way to be faithful to Jesus Christ was to throw yourself unquestioningly into the traditions, the structures, and the ways of being handed down to me in in my church or, or, or other churches. But God's Word teaches here and many other times and many other places that God's not impressed by our outward shows of religiosity. God's not impressed, particularly when those outward shows come from people who evidently have no interest in obeying him. We noticed it a few months ago when we were thinking together about the biblical mandate to to serve the poor in the name of Jesus. We saw in Isaiah chapter 1 a time when God confronts his people. Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. God's not impressed by religious shows and traditions. He longs for people who obey Him and who seek after Him. The first half of our passage this morning has has dealt with with Jesus' interaction with these Pharisees. In the second half from verses 10 through to 20, Matthew records some of Jesus' teaching that that comes out of this event. Jesus turns to the crowd and he says, listen, don't get caught up in in hand washing. What you put in your mouth is never going to make you clean or unclean, acceptable or unacceptable to God. It's what comes out of your mouth. The speech that reveals the reality of your heart, that's what you ought to be worried about. That's where you ought to focus your attention. Your words and your thoughts and your actions, they give the irrefutable evidence of what's really going on inside of you. It's in the final verses of the chapter from verses 16 to 20 that Jesus elaborates on this a little. He picks up in verse 17 and he tells his disciples, listen, don't you realize whatever you put into your mouth goes through your dietary tract and it ends up in the sewer. It's absolutely immaterial for life with God. Of far more consequence are the things that come out of your mouth because they reveal your heart They reveal that your heart's full of evil thoughts, of murder, of adultery, sexual immorality, theft, lying, and slander. Jesus says it's these things. And the countless other things that he could have added to that list, it's these things, and, and not food that we eat, that makes it impossible for us to come before a holy God. Friends, our problem's not That we're not churchy enough. Our problem is not that our rules aren't strict enough or that we don't do well enough in keeping them to please God. Your problem and my problem and the problem of every single human being on the planet is that we're rotten to the core, that our hearts are a landfill. Overflowing with garbage. Maybe you're not sure that Jesus is right about this. Let me recap for you a couple of our recent news stories. Seventh of March two thousand and nine, sappers Mark Quincy and Patrick Azimkar murdered at Masarine Barracks in Antrim. Tenth of March two thousand and nine. Constable Stephen Carroll murdered in Craigavon. St. Patrick's Day 2009, rioting breaks out on the streets of the Holy Land area of Belfast. Today, a 42-year-old Austrian woman, woman by the name of Elizabeth Fritzl will experience her first Mother's Day of freedom. She's the mother of seven children. And you know, because you've heard the news story, you've seen that one develop over the the last year, you know how she came to be the mother of those seven children. Jesus was right when he talked about the reality of the evil That is in the human heart. He didn't overstate the case when he talked about the evil within. Folks, if Jesus is right, then our situation is much, much more serious than we first realized. Our problem is much more fundamental than than we ever imagined. Our problem is not that we have a few bad habits or that we struggle to keep a few churchy rules. Jesus says we're rotten to the core and that our hearts overflow with sin. Friends, if if what Jesus says here is right, if our hearts really are like that, then, then washing our hands before we eat going to a certain quota of church services, wearing the right clothes and using the right Bible translation, they don't cut it. They're good for nothing. None of these things will make us right before a holy God. They're they're like sticking plasters over gaping wounds. It's, It's papering over the cracks. This kind of religiosity and churchianity We're deluding ourselves. It's blindness. That's what Jesus calls it in verse 14. Blindness. Folks, the radical sickness of the human heart needs an altogether more radical solution. We need God in His mercy to forgive us the rebellious lives that we've lived. We need God to act graciously to save us from the judgment that hangs over us. We need to be rescued. We need to be saved. We need a Savior. Friends, do you see now that Jesus, who speaks so honestly about the reality of the human heart, he's the only one Who can save us? The only one who can clean our hearts. And praise God, He's the one who will do it. He's the one who came into the world to save sinners. Folks, Jesus' teaching in Galilee that day was massively offensive. Did you see that in verse 12? The disciples come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, don't you realize how much you have offended the religious churchy guys? Jesus knew it all right. He knew that what he was saying then was offensive. It was offensive then and it's offensive here today. Today. You see, adherents of churchianity are deeply offended that their church attendance, that their rule-keeping, that their respectability isn't good enough, that it won't make them right with God. They're offended at the notion that they're sinners and that they'll only be accepted by God because of His mercy and grace. That's deeply offensive when your whole view of yourself is built up on the notion that I am good enough that God would do well to accept me because I'm such a swell guy. Those who are churchy in this way, they're affronted by the idea that they must humble themselves and receive the mercy and grace of God. In the end, this passage stands, I think, as a stark warning against churchianity, a religion where maintaining human traditions is more important than receiving and obeying the will of God. Jesus warned his contemporaries about following that way and following those kind of of leaders. He said they're blind, and if you follow them, you're blind too. You're on a road to nowhere. This is not how a person is made clean. This is not how a person is made right with God. Jesus pointed people instead to a different way. He pointed to himself. And he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Dear friends, can I plead with you this morning... If anything that I said this morning that, that describes a particular way of life, if that churchianity that I describes in any way strikes a chord with you, can I ask you to abandon that for once and for all? I have nothing to offer you here. As a Presbyterian minister, as a, a leader in this community, I have nothing for you. Our church services, none of the other meetings that we run, nothing else that we do here is any use to you if you aren't following Jesus Christ, if you aren't trusting in Him to forgive you and to make you right with God, everything else here is a waste of time. Folks, turn from the blind guides. Turn to Jesus Christ. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He's the only one who can make us right with God. Let us pray.